Every Other Monday, I'm joined by Tani Coons, our resident sexologist and relationship counsellor from Surrey Hills Therapy, as we continue our discussion of LGBTIQA+, and what it means in 2018, and what issues are facing the young people in these communities. Also joining us today is Teddy Cook, a role model for young trans men and an advocate for the visibility of trans men everywhere. Teddy has a particular passion for the sexual health of trans men who are attracted to other men and is a powerhouse of an activist who's participated in a variety of NGO boards. Uh, Teddy, you're from ACON, which is an organisation for the prevention of HIV and the support of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and intersex health. Um, you you lead ACON's outreach work across southern and far, uh, sorry, southern and far west New South Wales and the Nepean and Blue Mountains region. I do. Um, Good morning to you, of course, first, and welcome. I wanted to ask you what changes you've seen for LGBTI people living in regional Australia in the past decade uh, in terms of the services and support that's available to them and culturally as well. Uh, And thank you for that intro. (laughs) That was quite a long intro. Um, It was. (laughs) So I think that it's really uh, a good indicator of how societies have progressed when we think about people living outside of metro areas and their health and well-being and their lived experience. Queer people, people of the rainbow, have lived across regional towns uh, forever But certainly in the last decade, uh, we've seen increasing visibility of the communities. Uh, In the areas that I work in and my team works in, in our outreach work, we've certainly seen uh, really that there are members of our community everywhere from Cities like Wollongong and, and certainly Newcastle, they had a, an amazing pride mm. picnic, pride a huge pride fair day this weekend. Um, but in areas where they may have 200,000 people like Wollongong to a little town remote community like Wilcannia that has a community of about 700 or 700 people, that our communities are everywhere. So, you know, I'm finding that uh, services are beginning to orient uh, their work to make sure that they're trying to be as inclusive as possible and thinking about our communities. Uh, some of the health issues that are being presented, though, uh, are really kind of the same as people are experiencing here in the city. So things around mental health and substance use and being able to access healthy relationships and support for relationships if they're feeling perhaps not so healthy. Um, it, it certainly issues around ageing. Um, but one of the key things for people in the bush uh, or in you know on the coast or in the middle of nowhere in the outback is issues like social isolation, being able to access inclusive, judgment-free, confidential services where their privacy will be respected. And, it, and you know what? For the most part, privacy is absolutely respected, but there is a perception that it won't be because community town, little country towns uh, love a little gossip. And But, you know, confidentiality is always uh, at the forefront of service providers' minds. Um, without, we're seeing more and more uh, an emerging issue around, around trans people of all ages wanting to be able to access what I would call basic medical care. So 
you know, transition-related healthcare, being able to access things like hormones in the country town that they live in without needing to travel vast distances. Um, and, you know, really being able to access a comprehensive sexual health screen through their GP or sexual health clinic, you know, regardless of where they live, is, I would say, a fairly basic um, human right. And so, uh, you know, we are seeing more and more that communities are coming together in regional communities. Some of the issues that are uh, really central in the lives of, of many country people are more so related to the environment. So, you know, the drought that is happening across, you know, a lot of the country at the moment is certainly playing out in the lives of, you know, LGBTI people across the state. And we have many queer farmers or, you know, families where where there's farming and they've got queer kids or trans kids and, um, you know, issues around the health of river systems is certainly playing out in the lives of our communities. Um, but, you know, there are community groups, queer community groups across the state. Uh, there are trans social and support groups across the state in places where you might not even expect there to be, little towns, big towns, um, festivals happening around the place, Broken Hill Festival in Broken Hill is next weekend or the weekend after, uh, you know, pride events popping up all over the place. So, you know, that increasing visibility means that uh, that our community's needs are becoming much more apparent and the response to those needs needs to be much more appropriate and resourced. And would you say that um, transphobia and homophobia are on the decline in this sort of digitally connected age where there's more access to your communities online? That's a really good question. I think um, I think hom- the experiences of homophobia and transphobia have been changing in the last, you know, even last five years, really. Uh, it, the, those days of uh, the immense physical violence that our communities experienced, particularly gay men living in the inner city, those days have, you know, I would say very thankfully passed, but that doesn't mean that the lived experience of our communities is all sewn up and sorted. Um, uh, you know, violence against our communities plays out in lots of different spaces, whether that's structural violence or issues or, or experiences of violence and discrimination in healthcare settings or from neighbours or in um, the workplace or in other public spaces. But uh, it is, you know, certainly playing out in terms of harassment, stigma and discrimination online, you know, at school, at work um, and in different kinds of places, even though we do have fairly robust anti-discrimination protections in New South Wales, accessing justice for people who have experienced uh, discrimination can be very hard. Yeah, I think um, last week there were laws passed in um, New South Wales that you could face a jail sentence of up to three years or a hefty fine for discriminating against trans people and, um, yeah, gender non-conforming. So, yeah. This is a question for both of you, uh, Tanya and Teddy. What is internalised transphobia slash homophobia and what does it lead to? Do you want me to answer that? Yep. Yeah, go well, I'll come I th- after you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's, um, I mean, when we live in a society where 
diverse experiences and expressions of sexual orientation or gender or, you know, ways that we express ourselves are not what is expected or considered. You know, we live in a society that is, you know, it, by its very essence, um, very heteronormative. So it's mm. ex- expected that all people will be cisgender, which means not trans, and certainly that all people will be heterosexual. Um and so we live in this sort of structures of the world where our experiences as queer people are seen as different. And that can really create this idea as we develop that there is something within us that is not okay. And uh, really there is everything about us that is okay and actually really normal. But uh, experiences of trauma at any age across the lifespan can be really easily internalised to create this idea that there is something about us that isn't good. Yeah. And I come across this when I'm working with clients where people, they kind of pick on themselves for not being okay and they blame themselves because they're different or because they think their family and friends or the community around them won't accept them. So they get really angry and they attack themselves rather than trying to find or seek support elsewhere if they're not getting it from their immediate circles. So it can really turn into this awful self-loathing and feeling not okay um, when actually they're totally fine. There's people out there that are totally like them. They just haven't um, come across them yet or, or received adequate support. So that's internalised transphobia and homophobia. We're going to get to some more definitions and linguistics after <laughs> a song. Come on. On Mornings with me, Bridie Tenner, I'm joined by our resident sexpert, Tani Coons. And we have a very special guest today, um, honorary sexpert here on Let's Talk About <laughs> Sex, Teddy Cook from Akon. Welcome back. And I want to just kick this half of the, the talk off with a bit of a refresher on the acronym LGBTIQA+. Now, this is, a, this is an acronym that has developed over the years. Um, can I start with why is sometimes the QA plus left out and it's just LGBTI? That's also a very good question. Yes. Um, I think I think it's important to contextualise about why these letters come together. And then maybe that might help make sense about why some letters are sometimes left off and sometimes not. Um, this is a, a large collection of very disparate, different communities that will sometimes overlap and sometimes not, but that come together really as a human rights movement because we have shared experiences of stigma and discrimination. We have shared experiences of a loss of autonomy and the ability to self-determine who we are, how we're in relationship with others, what our body is like, how we engage with our body or how it's left alone. And so... uh, kind of outside of the the kind of identity spaces or label machines that create what some people call alphabet soup or, (laughs) you know, I, I, I just tend to think about our communities as a population who experience discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression and sex characteristics. And then, so LGBTI, LGBTIQ... LGBTIQA plus um, is are all 
are beautiful acronyms that kind of mean the same sort of experiences as a human rights movement. But um, there's there's no such thing as an LGBTI person. Mm-hmm. It's a population, a group of people, sort of like in health sector speak, we talk about people who are culturally diverse as being culturally and linguistically diverse, as they called people. There's there's no such thing as our cold person. person. It's a population, mm. a disparate group of people that come together through shared experiences. Um, so I think, you know, that's sort of a, an important kind of framing about what it is that brings our communities together because that also means that people within the community, there's sometimes, I think, an assumption that people will know, mm. you know, that what all the different... Uh, human rights agendas are for every person within that population grouping. So we make some assumptions, I think, that cisgender gay men, for example, will automatically know what even what the human rights agenda is for, for lesbians of any gender history or the human rights focus for trans people or intersex people and, and that or bisexual people. And that that's certainly not, not the case. So I think that there's... Um, opportunities across when we understand and unpack what this acronym of populations means that we are kind of really clear about who we're talking about and what that means. Yeah. If you've got questions, you can feel free to send them in on 0409 945 945. Another question I have for you is uh, sometimes I hear female identifying um, used and I'm just wanting to know what exactly that means. Who does that include? Right. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would say people are being very inclusive, trying to be very, very inclusive when they talk about female identified people, and they mean people who are who are women, and and recognizing that uh, womanhood uh, includes people of all gender experiences and gender histories, and mm. being very specific that trans women are women, intersex women are women cisgender women are women and that woman is a, a, a broad well actually it's not really broad it's, really. It, well, it's how they identify it's not using their genitals to identify them sure yeah so I, often when I'm giving talks say to people you can be a female and have a penis it's it's and people sometimes have difficulty getting their head around that because all they've known is females who identified by their their genitals and they've been assigned that at birth but some people may be assigned um, a sex or gender at birth but feel differently about that or are, definitely are different so in that space they're trying to to be very inclusive because I hear that a lot with events mm. promoted saying it's open to females uh, and female identifying folk because that can also be very political yeah yeah uh, yeah uh, yes absolutely can you explain what misgendering is? Ah, yeah, that's a good one. That's when um, people use the wrong pronouns uh, for people. Or so, if uh, you have, say, a trans a trans woman and someone insists on calling them him or her, him or his, or or a bloke, just because they might hear a deep voice or or it's their perception. But you really need to check in with people. If you're not sure, ask them, what pronoun do you use? Don't say preferred pronoun because that indicates some sort of choice. It's actually, who are you and um, how should I refer to you? Um, misgendering takes many, many 
forms. You know, we can say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and you're suddenly leaving people out. You can talk about boyfriends and girlfriends. You can talk about mums and dads. There's, you know, there are ways that you can sort of be inclusive by referring to people, to folks, to partners, to significant others. There's lots of ways that you can change your language so that it's not so gendered and it won't leave people out who might be gen- um Gender expansive, I think, is the word. So some people who identify as non-binary don't fit into ladies and gentlemen, and they can feel really niggly or not okay when we're not using language that will include them as well. This uh, this one's going to be quite obvious to a lot of people, but I was hoping you could highlight some of the main differences between transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming. Great. <laughs> sure. Um, I don't know if this will be... Um it's never easily understood <laughs> by many, by lots of people. I think so. That I mean, I think that we can kind of think about the trans experience as uh, a, a bit of an umbrella, really, that includes people that identify their gender as being different to what was assigned to them at birth. So when I say assigned to them at birth, I mean, uh, you know, when the taxi driver or you know, doctor you know, was present when they <laughs> slid out, that it, upon a quick glance of their genitals that their legal uh, legal sex classification was assigned, that yep. M or F was popped on their birth certificate. Um, and, yeah, so trans people, trans and gender diverse people, uh, uh, people who identify their gender as being different to what was assigned to them at birth. But um, that can include people that identify only as male or female. Um, so, for example, me, I'm, I'm, just, I don't, I'm just a man. I don't yeah. even really identify as trans, even though I uh, acknowledge and, and honour my trans experience and my trans history, but I'm just a dude. That's very important to say, actually. Very important. Um, thank you. Thanks. Um, <laughs> And but there is a, a wide range of non-binary identities. So people that don't exclusively identify as man or woman, or male or female, um, and and that can be people that are that are gender queer, or even bigender, or agender, or you know, gender fluid, or identify as something else altogether. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you know, we know that gender is really vast and wide, and indigenous experiences of gender have been present since humans were invented um, and this sort of idea that you can only be a man or a woman and that is uh, that is uh, you know identified at birth based on the shape of your genitals um, feels really kind of boring that that that, <laughs> is, that that would be our idea of humanity when we know that humans are much more diverse and rich than that but also that if we think about our sex characteristics, you know, which are genitals, gonads, chromosomes and hormones, the only ones, that's our primary sex characteristics, the only one of those that can't be altered uh, are our chromosomes, right? So XX or XY or a diverse number of different combinations for Mm -hmm. people who um, may consider themselves to be intersex um, aren't really used in society to categorise people. Um, it's not something that confirms our personalities or how we look, really. Mm. Um, 
And giving people only one of two options and then trying to force them into boxes and, and also telling them you have to behave this way, you have to behave that way, creates so many problems for people and, and, and mental health issues as well, trying to live up to what you're supposed to be or what is normal. Mm. I think um, there's an important message in in the sort of society's medical norms of what it means to be born a boy or born a girl that are reinforced by this idea that who you are when you pop out is who you are always going to be. Mm. But for most people that is true. Like that is absolutely the case. But for many it isn't. Um, but there's a, there is a structural issue around people who are born with a a variation in those sex characteristics, whether that's apparent at birth or later on in life, that they may experience structural medical violence because society says that you have to look like a particular way and that's the experience for many intersex people. Yeah, so many surgeons are like, well, let me fix that up for you to the parents and that a newborn baby has absolutely no choice in that. I'm a big believer in self-determination and, and letting people just sort things out for themselves. Mm. Uh, on the text line 0409 945 945, someone saying, why don't we just stop using gender? Hooray! <laughs> um, we're pretty much out of time here, but I just wanted to uh, thank you both very much for coming in for Let's Talk About Sex Day. We have there's so much. It's such a huge topic. I had yeah. no idea uh, we were going to, yeah. Travel that path. Travel this path so far, but... Thank you so much. And if people have questions, keep sending them in and maybe we can put them up on the program page. Yep. 0409 945 945. Thank you to Tanya Coons, our Thanks, resident sexologist. Brady. And to Teddy Cook as well for coming in here on FBI Radio. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.